As we celebrate 20 years of God's faithfulness at Cornerstone Bible Church, it's tough not to look backwards without also looking forwards. The same God who has been faithful, we trust, will be faithful. If we were to spend some time brainstorming together, I imagine we could put together an impressive list of dreams for Cornerstone Bible Church. I'm going to share with you a couple of mine that are just my, my personal dreams, but they're not inspired, so don't get nervous. These aren't visions. They are the kinds of dreams I think that we can, drive, that we can strive together for. It's not a perfect list, it's just a sampling, and I think it would be great if the Lord would accomplish this. Soon, I see us, by God's grace, would, would love for us to be a church where there are new believers who need to be discipled. That will only come about as we evangelize and share the gospel. But one of the things that I've learned to love about Cornerstone Bible Church is that this is a well-taught and well-discipled church. And that many of you saints have been here for a long time and are very ready to disciple some new brothers and sisters in Christ. I see that from the quality of your marriages, from the quality of your parenting, from the way that you are an example in your work lives, you are ready to disciple some newborn baby Christians. And so that is something that I'm looking forward to seeing those, 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 those saints blossom under your discipleship. Further out, I can imagine uh, the many kids across the hall, and uh, soon this, this room is going to be bustling with them. I can imagine them, and whether it be in the next 10 years maybe, kind of just shoot there when my daughter will be graduating from high school. I could imagine them wanting to stay at Cornerstone Bible Church. I could imagine them doing their best to stay local because they are so excited about the kind of ministry that is happening at this church. That maybe they would say, you know, I could go to school far away, but instead I'm going to go to Cal State Fullerton because I want to be part of the college ministry that is going on at Cornerstone Bible Church. Because I'm so excited to, as a, as a high school senior, I want to stay local because I'm excited to go and to be part of the campus ministries that are going around near us. I want to be here because this is where God is saving people. Because this is where new believers are being discipled. This is where I want to stay. I want Cornerstone Bible Church to be my church right out of high school. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with anyone choosing to go to a different school, to move away. But I want us here at Cornerstone to have such a compelling case that high school students, 9th, 10th grade, 11th grade, would be looking and I won't say coveting, but so eager to be part of our college ministry because that is where God is working. That's what I want for my daughter. She might go away to school, but I want her to say, oh, I really want to stay here. Even further out, as we think about our missionaries, I want us to be a church that supports our missionaries until they come back from the field. 
I want us to have zealously prayed for them and sacrificially given for them and faithfully partnered with our missionaries for 30 or 40 years so that when they can no longer do their ministry overseas, they return here to use their gifts in this body where they will be cared for by us till the Lord takes them home. Right? And that would be an appropriate faithfulness to match their own faithfulness. Wouldn't it be sweet if Marcus and Amy retired to this church and used their last years serving here? As we launch Sam and Amanda, for them to come back and find us still faithful, to find our children to be the ones who had given faithfully for them, as we get older, and maybe even some of our grandchildren knowing and loving the Cogburns. And I have no doubt that you could add your own visions to the future of Cornerstone Bible Church. That's just a little bit of what I imagine. As we celebrate God's faithfulness this morning, we look back to the past, but we also look forward to the future at what God has done and what we pray by God's grace, if he is willing, he will do. And we have to ask ourselves, how will we be that fruitful, generational, outreaching, disciple-making church in the future? This morning, we're going to be in Hebrews 6, 9 through 20, and as our brother Huey uh, shared it is a departure from our series in 1 Peter, and I'll, and I'll explain why I went to this passage in a minute. But I want to begin by looking first at Hebrews 6, verses 7 and 8. So if you have your Bibles open, open up to Hebrews 6. Verses 7 and 8 are the concluding of a section that begins in Hebrews 5, 11 and goes up to Hebrews 6, 8. It is a section, and there's a lot we don't know about Hebrews. We don't even know who the author of Hebrews is, although there's lots of guesses. In this section from Hebrews 5.11 to 6a, the author of Hebrews fiercely warns these persecuted Jewish Christians against leaving their commitment to Christ to go back to the less persecuted ways of Judaism. He's arguing that it's just not simple enough to be Jewish, that's just simple enough to partake in the temple worship. You can't leave Jesus Christ for whom you're persecuted. The author was disturbed, though, and he was burdened by the lack of maturity that these Jewish Christians were showing. He was dis disturbed by their lack of growth. But even though he was concerned, he was still confident of their salvation. So the unknown author of Hebrews ends this warning section here, begin in, in, in 5.11, goes up to 6, verses 7 and 8. It's one of several uh, warning sections in the book with an analogy in which he presents two kinds of soil, two kinds of grounds. Hebrews 6, 7, and 8, I'm going to read. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receive a blessing from God. That's one kind of ground. Ground that takes the blessing of the rain and grows fruit, fruitful ground. And here's the other kind in verse 8. 
But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. There's two kinds of ground here. The ground that produces vegetation, fruitful ground, and ground that produces thorns. By God's grace, Cornerstone Bible Church has been a fruitful ground. Both kinds of grounds here receive God's blessing, but only one produces fruit. Only one is blessed by God, the other is cursed. The two kinds of land here are, par- are, are parallel to two kinds of commitments to Christ. There's the commitment that falls away, that's not true salvation, and there's a commitment which bears fruit, which is only possible for those who are truly saved. So in Hebrews 6, 9 through 20, the section we're going to focus on tomorrow, I wanted to give a little context there. The author of Hebrews tells believers how to continue to be that fruit-producing ground. We're going to see what he's telling them as a group there is also applicable to our church as a whole. I'm going to read to you now Hebrews 6, verses 9 through 20. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way, with this really strong warning from 511 to 6.8. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises." For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he, Abraham, obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, that's what we as humans do, swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed or guaranteed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we do rejoice in your promises this morning. We rejoice in your character. We rejoice that you are not unjust or as The author of Hebrews says that you are righteous. You are righteous to remember our work, Lord. You are righteous to remember the way we've ministered to one another, that you won't overlook that, you won't forget that. Lord, you are a faithful, promise-keeping God. You even make an oath so that we know that you are going to do what you've said. And this is what we're remembering this morning, your faithfulness. And Lord, we want to continue, we want to be the kind of ground individually, but also as a church together, that is fruitful and that bears fruit for the upcoming years, Lord, that can be a testimony to those around us, whether in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, or the city of Fullerton, where you have placed us, to our children on the other side of this wall. 
Father, we pray for your grace as we look into your word this morning. Pray, Father, that you would bless me with clarity. Pray, Father, you would bless us all with ears that are eager to listen. I pray, Father, that we would be those who persevere and receive the reward that comes at the return of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. As we celebrate God's faithfulness to Cornerstone Bible Church this morning, I was drawn to this passage because of what it teaches about God's faithfulness. This is a passage about God's promise-keeping nature, about his faithfulness. I chose this passage, though, from among many about God's faithfulness because of how I was reminded of you, brothers and sisters, as I read this description of saints ministering to one another's needs, because I think that describes you well. But after choosing this text on God's faithfulness, I found that it has even more for us to say, and that's often the way it is with God's word. You go to it because of something, and then you find something much richer there as you explore it. To say to us, it says to us today about how, if the Lord wills, we'll be a fruitful church 20 years from now. So this morning, big idea is that Cornerstone Bible Church will continue to bear fruit through our love, faith, and hope. Cornerstone Bible Church will continue to bear fruit through our love, faith, and hope. And so we're going to see three characteristics of a faithful church. And the first is that the fruitful church must love God's people. The fruitful church must love God's people. We're going to look at that in Hebrews 6, verses 9 through 11. Let's start in in, in verse 9, and I'll kind of read a verse and then explain a little bit about it. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. He had been speaking in a really hard way. He'd given them a strong warning. But now, for the only time in the book, he says, beloved. He encourages them as his brothers and sisters, as his loved ones. He says that he's convinced after this hard warning of better things of them, of things that accompany salvation. Not in contrast to verse 8, the the thorns and thistles, ground which is worthless and close to being cursed. He was convinced of these brothers and sisters that they would not end in destruction because they were real brothers and sisters. That they would look forward to the eternal blessings that would accompany their salvation. And here in verse 10, he explores what the source of his confidence is. And this confidence is, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. The author is convinced that the audience would enjoy the eternal benefits of salvation because of first, God's character, and second, because of their obedience. So he's convinced that they'll enjoy the benefits of salvation because of God's character and of their obedience. So first he talks about God's character. He says in the beginning of verse 10 that God is not unjust. That's double negative. God is righteous. And in his righteousness, God rewards obedience. That doesn't mean that we can earn our salvation, but he does reward obedience just as he promises. He will not forget. He will not overlook. He will not ignore your spirit-wrought, Christ-empowered obedience. And that is true of you, brothers and sisters. God will reward your faithfulness. So God is not unjust. That's one of the reasons why he's convinced of better things for them. But he also 
says that, that you've been obedient. And he describes their obedience in two ways. He says, he is not as just as to forget, and here's the two ways, your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. These are the two aspects of their obedience. They had worked, and we'll, we'll learn more what that work is. But he also says, the love you have shown towards God's name, towards his name, the love that you have demonstrated, and that is what our work is. It is a demonstration of our love for the Father. God the Father is the object of our love, but the direction of that love has been outward. He's the object of love. He's the motive of our love, but the direction of that love has been outward. And then he goes on to explore at the end of verse 10, what the, how did they show this love? What was this work? In having ministered, in having served, and in still ministering and still serving to the saints. That is what the work's done. They ministered to one another. They served one another, and they served the saints, and they did that in the past, and they are still doing that. Hebrews 10, verses 32 to 34, describes a little bit of what the serving looked like. He describes, and he says, as he encourages them, remember the former days when after being enlightened, after you came to Christ, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. They were persecuted for following Christ, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. Reminds us of what the saints in 1 Peter were going through. But partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. You ministered to those who were going through suffering for Christ. You partnered with them, verse 34 of chapter 10, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners. When the saints were put in prison, you showed sympathy to them and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves better possessions and a lasting one. They ministered to the saints in prison. As people were going through persecution for submitting to Christ, they were coming alongside them. Now, that's just a little bit of the way that they ministered to one another. Now, the author, though, Hebrews, doesn't want them to rest on their past accomplishments. And neither must we at Cornerstone Bible Church. We can't rest on the many short-term teams we've sent to the Czech Republic. We can't rest on the years we've spent serving in rock ministry or worship ministry. We can't only look back at fondness of the campus ministry at Ada Irvine. We can't just count up how many times we've brought meals on wheels. Now, 20 years is a great time to reflect on the ministries that we've done, on the VBSs held, on the numbers of diapers changed, on the dollars given, the songs sung, the weeks spent in the Czech Republic. And we can rejoice in God's faithfulness, but we don't want to rest on that past ministry. And neither does the author of Hebrews want them to rest on that past ministry. Verse 11, he says what he desires, and we desire. That word desire is a strong word. It's what we long for. If you use that word for negative things, for sin, it's called craving and coveting shows how strong that word is. We long for, he says, we desire, we long that each one of you show the same diligence. Show the same diligence in ministering. The diligence, the, the effort, the earnestness in ministering to the needs of one another. As you have in the past, show that same diligence. Put in the same effort now out of love for one another, 
and out of love for the Father. And here is why he's longing that they do, that they put in this diligence at the end of verse 11. So as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. So as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. So that they, these ministering saints, would have confident, unwavering, certain, bold hope of the completion of God's promises. That they would have confidence of entering his rest, of reaching the finish line, of being welcomed into the heavenly city, of hearing the master say, well done, good and faithful servants. The author of Hebrews understood that this, and, and, and it's a full phrase here, right? The full assurance of hope until the end. Their complete conviction. It was tied to their diligently serving one another, right? It's why he longed that they would show the same diligence in ministering to one another so that, that they would have the full assurance of hope until the end. Serving leads to certainty. Helping confirms our hope. Assistance enforces our assurance. And earnestness in devotion is tied to confidence in salvation. Many of you at Cornerstone have enjoyed this full assurance of hope as you have lovingly poured yourselves into serving one another. And I know that this section here does not specifically say love, but that's what's prompting this ministering to one another, this serving one another. It's love. Now, this is obviously not only limited to service to ministry here on Sunday morning, but it doesn't exclude all the ministry that happens here on Sunday morning. See, the fruitful church shows its love for God by lovingly, by lovingly ministering to its people. So how are you ministering to the body? There are needs here on Sunday morning. Please do not put your fingers in your ears as you hear the same needs mentioned again and again. There are needs in the saints' lives during the weeks. I know that not every one of you has the same capacity to serve here on Sunday morning. But as you are part of care groups, are you serving one another, ministering to one another's needs during the weeks? See, God will not forget your works in ministering to the saints. Your works in loving one another as you show love for Him. So, the logic of this verse, the logic of the verse is that your full assurance of hope until the end is dependent upon your diligence in ministering to one another. If you fail to serve, you're not going to enjoy the certainty. You might have a creed. You might can look back and say, I was baptized. You might have a salvation experience. But you will not have conviction that the just God won't forget your works and the love which you've shown toward his name if you're not ministering to one another. And this is just why he longed for them. He wants them to be certain of their salvation. And so he says, I want you to show diligence in your ministry to one another. So the logic of this verse is that you are leaving assurance of salvation. You are leaving conviction. You are leaving hope on the table if you're not ministering to one another. 
Now, again, that is not just in a formal ministry of Cornerstone Bible Church, but it shouldn't be excluded either. You should say, how am I ministering to the saints? And you should be able to answer that. Hockey is an exhausting sport. I know that from watching hockey, not playing. There are four lines of offense in hockey. Three people on four lines. They take turns being on the ice because it's so exhausting. Those three people will be up there about an average of 45 seconds before another line comes out on the ice for 45 seconds. And another line comes out on the ice for 45 seconds. We shouldn't leave our fatigued brothers and sisters on the ice without doing our part. Everything I've known about Cornerstone Bible Church, that from the very first visit, when, when, when dear brothers and sisters put a gift basket in our room and, and, and came and babysat our girls so that we could meet with the elders, everything that I've known is that you are a ministering church that you love one another by ministering to one another. So I'm going to long for you to show the same diligence so that you realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Don't give up. The fruitful church must love God's people, and they demonstrate that by ministering to one another. The fruitful church must also have faith in God's promises. So it must have love for God's people, and it must also have faith in God's promises. And we see that in Hebrews 6, verses 12 through 15. It must have faith in God's promises. Now, the author of Hebrews is, does not give us a super clear outline here. It's not saying love in these verses, hope, or, or faith in these verses, and hope in, in, in the end. It, they're kind of all interwoven, but there is a shift in focus here. And we see that shift happening in verse 12. He says, so that you will not be sluggish. Not be lazy, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And it introduces the next characteristic of a faithful church here, and that's faith. The author motivates the audience with the purpose of diligence in loving. Here's the purpose. Here's why he tells them that they should have this diligence. The effect of it is a full assurance of hope until the end. But here's the purpose, so that you will not be lazy. You'll not be sluggish. And he was concerned that they were being lazy. That is what they'd become. They were in danger of drifting away, of falling away. So instead of being lazy, he, he, instead positively, he says that he wants them to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, faith and patience, when he says that in verse 12, they're, they're not two separate ideas. They're, they're, they're joined together. They're defining one another. He's talking about steadfast faith, about persevering faith, patient faith. The author then gives a sneak peek down the hall of faith in, he, in Hebrews 11, which is coming. But he gives a sneak peek here by talking about Abraham. He focuses on Abraham as one that we are to imitate. In verse, in verse 13, so wait, in the middle of verse 12, he says, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then he talks about who we are to imitate. Verse 13, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. 
The author references here from Genesis 22, 16 to 18. Some of you who know the Bible well knows what happens in Genesis 22. It's where God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son of promise, Isaac. And Abraham was about to obey. He was on the verge of plunging that knife when God stopped him. And in verse 16 of Genesis 22, God says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. That was God's promise to Abraham. But notice in Genesis 22, 16, I just read that. He says, by myself I have sworn. He had already given that promise, but now God is building upon that promise with an oath. Now, back to Hebrews 6, verse 13, it says, since he could swear by no one greater. God can't call anyone else as witness that he's telling the truth. God can't place his hand on the Bible and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, because he is God. With no one greater to swear by, no other authority to call to testify on his behalf. God calls on himself as witness to verify the truth of this oath. He swore by himself, it says in the middle of Hebrews 6.13. And God verifies this promise by taking an oath. Then verse 15, it says, And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Abraham patiently waited. And what did God give him? He reaffirms this promise to him. He affirms this promise. Now, Abraham waited patiently, but he did not wait perfectly. He waited patiently, but he failed miserably at times. He waited patiently, but that didn't stop him from saying, Sarah, that's my sister, not my wife. Right? He didn't trust that God would keep his promise, and so he hid the fact that Sarah was his wife. It didn't stop him from saying, wow, I'm not having biological children with Sarah. I'll sleep with her servant, Hagar. And yet the, the pattern of his life, even though there were serious missteps, serious acts of disobedience, serious episodes of not believing, the pattern of his life, was characterized by faith. And because he waited patiently, I think this is encouraging to us. This is the way that we wait patiently. It is not perfect faith, but it is ongoing, continuing faith. Because Abraham waited patiently, he obtained this promise guaranteed by an oath. In verse 12, to go back a verse, a couple of verses, it says, We are called to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We are to continue through faith. We are to look at Abraham and say, Do you see how Abraham, over the pattern of his life, kept believing God's promises? We need to keep believing God's promises. This is how God preserves us through our continued faith until we receive what he has promised. Those who are fruitful persevere. And if we are going to be a fruitful church, we must continue in faith in God's promises. 
We might falter, but we must not throw in the towel. We must be those who stake their claims on God's promises, promises of his eternal presence, promise of eternal rewards from him, promise of the expectation of eternally pleasing him, promise of enjoying the celebration of his eternal victory over sin, promise of celebrating his victory over death, his victory over Satan. See, those who are faithful will not let go of God's promises like Abraham. And if we're going to be fruitful as a church together, we must continue together by encouraging this faith in the lives of one another, even as the author of Hebrews is doing here. Are you encouraging one another to faith? Don't let a brother or sister fall off coming to church. Or stop coming to care group without doing everything you can to go after them and to plead with them to continue believing. Don't let someone flirt with the promises of sin. Don't do everything you can to plead with them and say, no, Christ is better. We will be tempted to drift. You will be tempted to shrink back like those that the author of Hebrews was writing to. We will be tempted to doubt if it's worth it, to wonder if there's an easier way, to crave what the world seems to have, what looks so simple and so struggle-free of just coasting and enjoying life. We need one another's exhortation to believe and to imitate the faith of those who have gone before us. This is what the author of Hebrews does in chapter 10, verse 23 to 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day is drawing near. So continue in faith. It is getting closer. Encourage one another so that we persevere together. That is how we'll be this fruitful church. A fruitful church must love God's people, faithfully ministering to one another. Fruitful church must have faith in God's promises. And third, the fruitful church must hope in God's high priest. The fruitful church must hope in God's high priest. We'll see that in verses 16 to 20. The author returns in verse 16 to this focus on God's promises. He began this in this previous kind of flow of thought, verses 12 through 15. But we're going to see that he's, his focus is now not on faith, but on hope. Of course, they are related. Verse 16. For men swear by one greater than themselves. And with them, an oath given as confirmation is an end of every, of every dispute. And that's particularly true in an age where you couldn't just replay a video, right? Where everything that everyone does is being recorded by a dash cam. Or you just can't print out the online proof that you pay the bill in time. What you have is your word. It's a common practice in the ancient world was swearing an oath as proof of your testimony. I did pay the bill, and I'm going to swear an oath to prove it. It's calling upon God himself 
as witness to confirm what we've said. It's inviting God's judgment upon yourself if what you said was a lie. And this is basically what's at the heart of taking God's name in vain. It's having so little fear of God that you're willing to call God as witness when you're a bold-faced lie. So when people in the ancient world wanted to end a dispute, they called God as witness. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given is a confirmation, is an end of every dispute. We have no way to settle this. Who's going to take the oath? Verse 17. In the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. And so this is incredible. God in his grace desires to affirm the unchangeableness of his purpose to the heirs of the promise. Now, that's important there, to the heirs of the promise. It's not just Abraham. It's us. And we saw in Genesis 22 that that promise includes the nations being blessed. It includes not just his physical descendants, but his spiritual descendants. Well, God had no one greater to call on than himself. And so he interposed, he mediated, or he guaranteed with an oath. Now, this oath, of course, doesn't make what God said any more truthful. But it gives us two unchangeable things, verse 18. So that two unchangeable things, first is his promise, second is his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie. As scripture teaches, God is not a man that he should lie, or uh, Titus 1, 2. That God who cannot lie, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. And what a sweet way to describe the Christian life. We who have taken refuge. That's what it means to be a believer. It's we who have taken refuge. We are those who have fled to God for safety from God. We have turned to the righteous judge to be rescued from righteous judgment. We flee to the cross where God's wrath was outpoured to escape the wrath of God that deserves to be outpoured on us. We flee to the throne of heaven to escape the gates of hell. We flee to the gospel to escape condemnation. We are those who flee. We are those who take refuge in Christ alone. And so this is, we who have taken refuge in verse 18 of Hebrews 6 would have strong encouragement, mighty encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. And this hope, it needs to be taken hold of. It needs to be seized. It needs to be not let go, go of. We need to sink our fingernails into this hope. And this hope is not an empty wish. It's the content of what God has promised. It is the conviction of things not seen. It is what we know is true in Hebrews 11, 1, the conviction of things not seen. And then the author of Hebrews goes on to explain this hope in verse 19. This hope we have, and he's going to describe it in several ways. We see the value of the hope, not as a wish, but our, our confident expectation describes it as an anchor of the soul, an anchor of the soul. It's really a beautiful picture to the extent to which we take hold of this hope, there will be no shipwreck of our faith, no storm which will crash upon our salvation, 
no storm that would crash our salvation upon the rocks. It is an anchor of our soul. He describes it as an anchor of our soul in verse 9. He describes it as sure and steadfast, as certain and firm, as guaranteed and fixed. This hope is unbreakable. And then he describes it even more. He describes it as, as a hope which enters in within the veil. Describes there the temple and God's presence in the most holy place. And this hope, this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul is in God's presence. It is in heaven itself. It is a hope which brings us into God's presence where we see the content of that hope himself, our great high priest. And that's where the author goes next in verse 20, where Jesus has entered a forerunner. Oh, what a horrible thing to enter into God's presence without a forerunner, without someone going before us, paving the way before us. Could you imagine us going to God's presence without a great high priest? For us to go into God's presence without this great high priest, Jesus Christ, bringing that sacrifice of his perfect life for ours, if we had no forerunner, if we had no one take precedence before us, if we had to go into God's presence alone, he would see us as we are. We would be naked before him. We would be ashamed. We would be utterly destroyed. Our God is a consuming fire. But we have this hope of this great high priest where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You want to learn more about that? Now is not the morning. You can read more in Hebrews 7. But Jesus there, our hope is Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who has preceded us, gone before us into God's presence, having brought the sacrifice of his own blood so that we can be welcomed. And that is our hope that we cling to. So the purpose of God's promise, the purpose of God's oath, which he didn't need to give, he already said it, it is impossible for him to lie, we see is that we would have this strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. And if we are going to be a fruitful church, we need to keep taking hold of this hope. We need to seize it. Are you taking hold of the hope of Jesus Christ, the great high priest? And I don't mean just passively believing not just signing out, signing off on a statement of faith, yes, I'm a Christian, but holding on expectantly, holding on eagerly to Christ himself as if your life depended on it, as if he is that anchor. Are you with white knuckles seizing God's promises this day? Are you just on a boat, just kind of adrift on the sea? Yeah, I'm a Christian. If we're going to be a fruitful church, we have to continue together by encouraging one another to seize that hope. This is why we meet on Sunday morning. This is why we meet during the week. We can't make our confessing brothers and sisters Hold on to that hope. I wish we could. 
but we encourage them of the certainty and stability of that hope, of the goodness of where that hope leads, of the great high priest who's gone before us. I need you to tell me that hope, and we need to speak into one another's lives of the greatness of this hope, or we won't persevere. So are you pleading with our great high priest on behalf of our brothers and sisters? Are you pleading with our great high priest for their perseverance, for their endurance, for their continuing? Are you pointing often to others, to Christ? Are you pointing your spouses to Christ? Are you pointing your brothers and sisters to Christ? Like the authors of Hebrews does here. That's what the whole book is about. You can't leave Jesus. He's too good. There's nowhere else to go. Don't leave our great high priest. Cornerstone Bible Church is not alone in having gone through some hard things. But Cornerstone Bible Church has been a fruitful church. This is a church that is driven by God's word, that has been protected by God's word, that is committed to God's word. It is a church that has been eager to meet one another's needs, a church that has been sacrificial in giving, a church that loves being together. It's a church that has been faithful to its missionaries. If we're going to continue as this kind of fruitful church, if we're going to be a church that is ready to disciple the new believers that by God's grace he'll bring to us in this next year, if we're going to be a church that is the center of this vibrant ministry that our graduating high school seniors say, but mom, dad, I don't want to leave Cornerstone. If we're going to be a church that our missionaries will want to return to and continually serving among us even though they can no longer be in the field. If we're going to be that kind of fruitful ground, then we have to individually, but then also together, continue in love and in faith and in hope, in love for God's people, with faith in God's promises, and hope in God's great high priest, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that you have preserved for us. Lord, even as uh, Aaron Shryock talked about during second hour, how many parts of the world doesn't have your word that they can so easily open. And even though we know that the book of Hebrews is challenging, his encouragement to the saints who were in danger of not continuing is, is clear here, Lord, that they had to have diligence, the same diligence in ministering to one another and in meeting each other's needs. And it is clear that they needed to be imitators of faith and clinging to God's promises. And it is clear that they needed to continue in hope, a hope as an anchor of the soul, certain and sure of that great high priest 
in heaven, your own son. And we thank you, Lord, that even as we pray this morning, Jesus, our great high priest, is interceding for us. Even your spirit is making sense of our feeble words, Lord. Your spirit in us, the spirit of your son, it is through him that we pray and we want our prayers to be in accordance with your will. And we have to humbly come and say, we know that there's lots of churches that don't make it another 20 years. They don't make it 40 years. It's only by your grace that we have survived this long. Father, but it's our desire. We want that prayer to be in accordance with your will, to be a fruitful church. And Father, we, 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 we think even this morning, but brothers and sisters who are not here and who are in danger of drifting. Lord, some we haven't seen in weeks. Lord, our, our hearts are burdened for them. We pray, Father, that they would return to the love, and re- continue in faith, and seize hold of the hope of your great high priest. We pray, Father, that we would be doing that this morning in one another's life, and that this morning... Lord, that it would launch us into another week of doing this with one another, of ministering to one another, of encouraging one another to continue in faith and to lay hold of this hope. I thank you so much for that great high priest who pleads the blood of his own sacrifice, Lord, because we are not worthy. And we are not here in your presence without our forerunner. It is because he has gone before us. It is because the veil has been ripped apart that we are able to be in your presence and that you can hear our prayers now. And so we do pray for the future of Cornerstone. Lord, we ask that you would bring us new believers and that we would be faithful with them and that we would disciple them well and that we would pass on what our dear brothers and sisters, this is a church that bears the marks of great discipleship by godly men. And I pray, Father, that we would be faithful to pass on that discipleship. Lord, we pray that you would spark a zeal and new joy by us seeing newly saved brothers and sisters. We do pray, Father, we don't know where you're going to send my kids, Lord, if they're going to go to college or not, if they're going to go to Fullerton or where you're going to send them, Lord. But we want them to, to be zealous and eager to be part of the work that you're doing here. Lord, and we want to be a church, Lord, if it, you allow in your will that, that our missionaries could come back here after sacrificing all and even outliving their families and that this be the church that buries our dear brothers and sisters who have left all of their family. Lord, help us to be that fruitful ground for many years to come as we continue in love, faith, and hope. In Jesus' name, amen.